Okay, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. What is up is arts and crafts. My five-year-old has an assignment from preschool. So that's the last year before he goes to school now. And he needs to deliver a presentation on planet Earth. The other kids, I believe, got other planets. He got Earth. And I, I think it's the easiest one, obviously. So I kindly suggested to him that perhaps we could utilize ChatGPT to generate random stuff and then you're done and we can do something fun. <laughs> but he insisted on doing this big splashy installation on a big piece of paper. So we go to the store, we get some glue, some glitter, some colorful pens, scissors, all sorts of random stuff. And and I'm not really built for that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I, I, I do have to say that I quite enjoyed the whole building thing with the, with the kid, of course, but also doing something with your hands, which is not typing on a keyboard. So that's what we've been doing for the past two evenings now. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, we do quite a lot of those things, and I, I really enjoy spending the time. Uh, now with the kids, they kind of pull you into these things, saying, hey, we'll learn this in kindergarten, or we're going to do this, this is our assignment. And I really love diving into those things, uh, you know, just exploring their creativity and, and see how their eyes kind of light up uh, when they figure out, oh, this is how I can do it. And then they try and they fail and they cry and then they try again and they succeed and you can see the success in their eyes. It's awesome. Um, so for me, uh, I've been prepping our kind of pint-sized garden for fall and winter. Um, you know, summer's fighting fast. And while we might be able to squeeze out uh, a little a uh, few warm days still, it's officially really lights out for sunshine over here. So rain, wind, and indoor coziness, that's on the horizon for me. Um, the garden got tidied over the weekend, and the greenhouse, well, it's gone from a plant paradise to a storage central. So that for me is officially autumn. The fall is here, and uh, the leaves are falling down from the trees, uh, the grapes are ready for harvest. That's my sign to get the firewood ready so the fireplace is, is ready for ignition indoors. Sounds awesome. We we have the same here in Helsinki, Finland, that you still see the sun, but just barely. It's it's mostly cloudy, rainy, windy, and just waiting for snow. Uh, on community highlights this week, we found a couple of interesting articles. Uh, the first one for me is an article from Valentina Alto on generating applications, real applications, from sketches with large language models. So the idea is to ask AI to build your website when you sketch out a rough sort of an outline that this is what, what, what it should look like. And the article does mention GPT for vision that will do this as part of OpenAI, the paid offering now, but this is something hand built to try to understand the process as well. That's for me. Uh, Toby, what did you find on the community? So one of the things that I saw is from Eddie Wang, uh, which is deploy ChatGPT next web to Azure container apps uh, using an individual account uh, login, and that takes about three minutes. Um, so exactly what the title says, uh, you know, utilizing Azure container apps to deploy the GPT uh, next web, and then you can run that by yourself. So a pre good kind of how-to guidance for getting that up and running. So that was interesting. And again, as you 
as you can hear in every episode now, it's there's a lot of things happening with LLMs and AI, generative AI. So I'm pretty sure you're going to hear more from us on on that as we move forward. So two things that I know that anybody could tell me now, and I would just straight up believe that as as the, as the truth. One is any sort of uh, end user framework or a web framework, you can say any name like next web. Okay, sounds awesome. This is probably something new. I don't know anything about. The other thing is a restaurant name. So I have friends who go to great restaurants and and, and we have a chat group and they say, yeah, yeah, we went to here. You, sh you should visit. And I'm like, I have no idea about any of these places. So you could tell me any name of a restaurant and I would go, yeah, great. Let me let me visit. So this episode, we are doing something new again. Instead of talking about perhaps of a single feature in Azure or a single topic, we figured let's take a look at the lessons learned in the past week. So we have three lessons we've learned. Let's let's sort of go through those. These are lessons from projects, prototypes, proof of concepts, trying to research a problem, coming up with a conclusion on that one. And, and for me, what I've sort of realized in the past couple of years is that there's only so much learning you can do by reading Microsoft Docs or Microsoft Learn. Only so much learning you can do with PowerPoints and doing PowerPoints. But when you really apply your knowledge into a deployment or a project or, or a proof of concept, then you'll start to see the gaps of your skills or the gaps in the documentation. Well, it says this, but this is not happening. So I need to figure this out now. And that's when the actual learning is happening, at least for me. Would you, would you share this sentiment or are you super happy with PowerPoint that you don't want to go any further? <laughs> Uh, I think we've we've been through uh, you know becoming PowerPoint uh, ninjas and then going back to the drawing board and then going back to PowerPoint and then going into the tech, you know you know all ends of the pool, not just the deep end. And I I think that's a a good realization that you said here that uh, you know you, you have to apply the knowledge in an actual project in an actual deployment and to your surprise it doesn't work the way it was meant to, or the way it was marketed, or the way it was described in documentation, because your parameters and the things you have around your deployment, uh, you know, you might have some other dependencies, you might have compliance dependencies, you might have physical or technical dependencies or data center regulation. Like, there's a bunch of things uh, playing in. Uh, so I, I think that's a really good realization that, you know, it, it might say that you just deploy this thing here and you get a web app in this uh, region. But what if you have, in this case, for example, a requirement from the business to be high, highly available, and it has to be at least in three different regions? Well, then none of those kind of discussions work anymore. The like the initial documentation, you have to go back and figure those things out. So, I, like a long story short, I, I think I agree here. Uh, there's so much PowerPointing you can do. There's so much you can learn from reading and, and from documentation. There are some really good architectural documentation on the learn platform as well but everything has to be adjusted into your kind of variables that you're deploying into you know both with the organization uh, the team and the technical platform and the workloads that you're operating so there there's always a lot to consider that's that's really well said uh, so the first lesson this is on microsoft fabric SKUs. SKU stands for something that i cannot recall right now stock keeping units maybe do you think it's that? 
Uh, yeah, I just asked ChatGTP uh, real <laughs> quick. <laughs> SKU stands for stock keeping unit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I usually just say, what tier is it? Like, is it the basic, exactly. the premium, whatever? That's the thing you select. <laughs> yeah, and 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 SKU translate translated to my native language Finnish. It it doesn't tell me anything. It's like, yeah, this makes no sense. It's 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 a product or an addition or a tier. Anyhow, anyhow, Microsoft Fabric SKU. So the lesson learned here. Uh, so first, we did talk about Microsoft Fabric previously with Oskari during episode 195, so about 10 episodes ago. And, and there we sort of came to the realization that Power BI work, all data platform, data architecture, data transformation, integration work, the future of those on the Microsoft landscape is now with Microsoft Fabric, period. So the SKUs, this has been bothering me a little bit, and, and I've been perhaps lucky enough or unlucky enough to now be involved in a couple of Microsoft Fabric deployments, and it's still early days, so the documentation is, is a little bit limited on, on some aspects here. And, and the main lesson here has been what SKU should a company choose? And what's the trigger for them to know that they need to move to a higher tier, to a more expensive SKU? Uh, Toby, do you recall from that 195 episode, do you recall the SKUs? We, I, I think we sort of quickly ran through them at the time. I, I don't recall them. Uh, I haven't been working a lot with Microsoft Fabric. I haven't really deployed any of the, the things around that um, recently, so I don't, I haven't been able to, or luckily, I haven't been uh, exposed to uh, having to make a decision around that. So I, I don't recall them, actually. So so the lowest skew is F2, and the highest skew is F2048. So some of you listening on this, maybe you are out walking your dog, and you're now thinking, hold on, F2 to F2048, does that mean that there's 2047 different SKUs to choose from. No, no, no. It's F2, F4, F8, F16, I think. So the power of two, essentially. And F2 is the cheapest one. That is $260 a month. It's a fixed fee. So it's capacity that you're reserving. A bit like spinning up a virtual machine that will cost you $260. It's about 290 euros. Uh, and the most expensive one, F2048, is $270,000 a month. Let's not enable that just yet. And often now, the lesson that I've learned is, is, is with, with customers sort of dipping their toes into Microsoft Fabric, they might have massive Azure Data Factory deployments, Azure SQL, data lakes, data lake warehouses, whatever you have. And Power BI Pro, of course. And now they go, well, Microsoft Fabric, is it enough if we go for F2? Because it's cheap. The lesson that I was now able to unearth with two prototype deployments is that you start with F2. And if you consume more than the capacity units give you in terms of throughput, Fabric will start throttling. So you will start seeing that it's throttling, it's, it's warning you. Yes, you are over the limit of the capacity that you're getting. And once it throttles enough, it will start poking you to upgrade from F2 to maybe the next one, F4. 
so key lesson, licensing for SKUs, you start with F2, you need Power BI Pro, of course, for the users, but then you ramp up from there. Do not go to F16 just in case. You start building from the, from the bottom. Does this make sense? It's kind of like uh, scaling up, uh, you know, kind of any, any deployment that, that you have. So it, it resonates with how we deployed things in the past. We distributed uh, computing platforms and systems all over the place. And whenever one of them hit a capacity constraints, either, uh, you know, limitations on the purchased capacity or just couldn't handle the load, we could just scale out or scale up automatically. Uh, so I think this is something that everyone has to then keep an eye on and see, hey, if we're getting throttled, we need to make a new decision. What I'm curious about is if there's an auto uh, scaling capacity, just like with virtual machine scale sets or like VM automation and things like that, that might be interesting to uh, to figure out, which is not really a licensing thing, which is what we're talking about now, uh, but an automation of upgrading your kind of licensing tier or the SKU, uh, which would be interesting. I don't know anything about that. So if you do work with it, that might be worth just checking out. Um, but yeah, I, I did take a look at uh, some of these things just now. And having those SKUs uh, from F2 to F2048, um, also going with the capacity units, you have to select Power BI SKU as well. If you get up to F8 or above, then you can select EM, uh, EM2, EM3, or P1, P2, P3, 4, 5, A1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on. Um, and then there's some type of per user license for that as well. And I think you mentioned that you need a Power BI Pro um, to really make use of, of all the features in there. Exactly. Uh, and in the show notes, there's a good link to Microsoft Fabric Licensing Guide from Riza Rad. It's a great blog article outlining the whole thing. And I had seen this before, but I couldn't make the connection on the throttling and the SKUs. And that I found out through a project. Alrighty, so moving on from lesson one, Microsoft Fabric SKUs to lesson two, this is something totally different. Enter ID, meaning Azure Active Directory, and Azure AD B2C future. How's your experience, Toby, with Azure AD B2C back in the day? I worked a lot with that. Um, so that is something that that I used for uh, enabling anyone to sign in with their like Google account, Facebook account, uh, Microsoft Live account, whatever it might be called Microsoft personal account today. Um, so we did use that for quite a variety of different things. So enabling people outside of the organization to sign in using a non-Microsoft account, uh, so a non-work account. And that was kind of the important bit. So which is the B2C there is business to consumer. So ergo. You might not have a Microsoft Work account if you're a consumer of a service that, that you have running. So uh, I, I've had quite some exposure to Azure B2C. And, you know, it's it's one of those, for, you know, hate-love relationships that when, when it works, you love it. But most of the time, something is a challenge with it or a limitation with it. And, and that's when you kind of stumble into the uh, undocumented territories, if you will, of Azure B2C. Uh, but, yeah, we did work quite a bit with that. Um, I don't want to share too many war stories around that right now because that was going to be a lengthy episode. Uh, but on Entra ID and Azure ADB to C in the future, um, what's top of your mind for this? So two things here. One is that my inherent dislike for Azure ADB to C, I, I dislike it with the power of a thousand suns because it's so problematic at times. 
<laughs> but the, the the problem comes from the fact that when you want to do custom policies, meaning that you're building an app, you want B2C accounts, perhaps somebody with a with a meta Facebook account, Gmail or something, and then you want some custom user journey on what sort of uh, registration process, for example, you'd like to involve in there. Those custom policies that bring custom user journeys, they tend to become quite complex and they are defined in XML. And I, I left XML in 2007 and I'm not <laughs> returning there. Uh, so now what I'm seeing, and this is this is the lesson here, I did not realize that Azure AD B2C has a successor and it's called Microsoft Entra ID External ID. Does, mm -hmm. does the naming make sense? There's a lot of ID here. I'm going to pretend I'm not confused. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm not, but I, I tried to get to the bottom of this and we might need somebody from Microsoft to explain this to us, but the feature is Microsoft Entra ID External ID, but the capability is Microsoft Entra ID for customers. So Microsoft Entra ID External ID includes B2B, and B2C, but the entry ID for customers includes the B2C, the future version. It's it's not Azure AD B2C. That's that's on a different path. And in preview, we now have entry ID for customers, which exposes the same type of capabilities, but on a newer platform and with this sort of uh, more fresh approach. I haven't had a chance to dig deeper into this one, so I, I'm not sure if there's still XML hiding somewhere in there. But this is in preview, it has some limitations. And the lesson here is that if you're considering on building something that requires B2C, authentication authorization, I wouldn't start on Azure AD B2C any longer. I would either make a prototype on Entra ID for customers, part of the external ID capability, or I would look into a third-party feature capability like Auth0 and or Okta. They're sort of the same company, but not really, but different products because they bring you the same capabilities as Azure AD B2C, but perhaps with less XML. So key lesson there, have a look at Entry ID for customers. Uh, the, the public preview is public. So the link is in the show notes and perhaps let us know if you've been working on this one, because I'm not in a position right now that I would dive, do a deeper dive on this one, but I'm more at looking at the architectural choices now and figuring out that, well, entry for customers in the future might be something to utilize here and there. Yeah, and I think this is a really good learning because I I have not caught up on entry for customers. I was not aware that this is Kind of a new angle to uh, to use consumers or customers that way, and um, you know, top of mind for me has been use OAuth or Auth0, use Okta, use Azure B2C or something like that to enable kind of the consumer connection, if you will. Uh, but this looks interesting, so I'm I'm gonna definitely check that out. I don't have any reason to deploy that at scale right now, but it would be interesting to start looking into Android ID for customers in the public preview to just compare because I very strongly remember all the pain points I had with Azure AD B2C 
if this can then maybe ease some of the pain there, maybe the management, some of the life cycle management of those things and upgrading whatever you need to upgrade the schemas and, and the XML files and whatever you had with Azure B2C. We had a lot of pain with that. Um, so maybe there's a way to uh, overcome some of those challenges. So now I'm curious, I'm going to take that first spin, going to take a look at Android ID for customers. So that's a good tip. Thank you for that. Good stuff. And the last lesson, lesson number three, and as you might expect, it has to do with Azure Open AI because a lot of things are about generative AI, but AI in general as well. Uh, and as a brief background for this is 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 that I was I was watching a YouTube video. I'll try to find the link for that uh, that one as well. I was I was doing my gym session at home, and I now have a TV on the gym wall. And what I tried is I put on a, a YouTube video of one hour, which which goes to stuff like this. And I'm doing my gym set and I just listen and maybe glance at the TV at a time. And it's surprisingly effective in in getting the meat of whatever lesson you're looking at. And And somebody said in that lesson that generative AI and AI in general, that is the electricity for us now, because when electricity was invented, Nobody really knew what it could be used for, maybe for, for turning on the light. But now you're charging your car with that. You might be heating your house with that, hopefully not with the prices, but anywho. And the same applies now for AI. So a couple of lessons here. And if you've been deeply involved with generative AI for the past 10, 11 months or even longer, then these are baby steps for you. But for me, this was new stuff. And, and I'm a little bit proud that I was capable of learning something new. Uh, so before I dive deep into some of these, uh, Toby, how how much do you do you get to work, or how much do you plan on working with, let's say, Azure Open AI in the future? Is this something that's on your map heavily, or is it more on the angle of ChatGPT and being a user for that? So it's been uh, mostly being a consumer of generative AI. Uh, right now, but perhaps not consumer might not be the right word because what, what I'm also doing is I'm building APIs. I'm deploying Azure OpenAI services, uh, you know, to experiment a little bit on how this can improve things I do in my daily life, in my daily work. I don't deploy it for production use because uh, that that's not applicable in the job I do right now. Uh, but I'm using it and I'm I'm deploying it and I am working with it and I have. Uh, I've had some challenges with splitting content. If I say, hey, I want you to uh, work on this specific content or my own content or something that I have. And if that content is too long, you have to chunk it down and then you have to figure out how do I chunk it down to make it you know, searchable in a good way and things like that. So it's been a kind of a long learning uh, from the like the creation and building side. But most of the time spent is actually consuming um, open AI through various forms, either internal APIs from someone who built something or using some of the public APIs that's available. Um, so I, I have a wide exposure to this, but not not really deep dive into like the architecture of setting it up or um, I, I would not consider myself uh, even close to being an expert on you know vectors and embeddings and all these things uh, for how to properly design that because that's a, in itself just a, a scientific kind of road you have to walk through to uh, to achieve good outcomes of that. Yeah, I, I, I like your approach here. Uh, for me, I am not an expert. Uh, I've been dabbling with machine learning for 10 years, 
but it's really on and off just trying to crack a problem here and there. And whenever it gets into deep math, yeah, I'm lost. Let me just do something else. For for me, how I get exposed to Azure OpenAI nowadays is that almost each and every customer meeting or customer project or a community meeting turns into a discussion on Azure OpenAI and OpenAI in general. And that got me into thinking that, well, I do need to know more about this, not because I am in the business of selling AI solutions. I'm more in the business of, of doing consulting around security. So, so in that sense, Azure OpenAI is a little bit far out, but it's super interesting at the same time. So on the evenings, again, I'm at the gym, I put on a YouTube video, I'm looking of, of stuff like this because this is something new for me. So a couple of lessons here, Microsoft Semantic Kernel, that is the orchestrator for which large language, on, on, on which large language model to use, because you can use multiple of those. So the idea of building a custom application, you don't have to say, let me use GPT 3.5 Turbo or GPT 4. Those are not the only, only models. You have tens or hundreds of different models from Meta, from, I think, from Google now, yes, with, 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 with what they published. So you can use multiple of those, and then you can combine those results into your application. So Langchain, that's the open source, more of a toolbox for doing the same. And Microsoft Semantic Kernel is more of an SDK or a library for Python and C Sharp for having this orchestrator, this traffic police on what goes where, how do we plan these prompts and flows and whatever else you have in there. And it took me a while to sort of grasp the idea that, okay, I might need semantic kernel for this and this deployment, but what's the role of that? The second thing is embeddings. So Toby, you mentioned embeddings and vectors and whatnot. So to build anything of use with Azure OpenAI, you do need to crack your content. And, and when I say crack, I do not mean a time travel back to 1995 to get a crack for a game, but this is more about opening a document or a PDF or whatever content you have and generating vectors on that content and storing those vectors in a database so that they become embeddings. And now when you utilize your LLMs, you can use those vectors to work around your content, your data, to ground your data as part of that whole experience. Does this make sense? It does. Um, and that's kind of my point of, uh, you have to take the scientific kind of road here and, and figure out how to split things and how to work with things. And, uh, and again, I'm no expert in this. Uh, I know there's a lot of people working on these things and it's a challenge for many to figure out how to properly kind of design these things. Um, but yeah, my my experience here is very limited. So I'm going to stay humble and say, I, I don't know much about it other than it, it does require, if you really work with this and you really want to make something useful out of building your own thing, it's going to require some thinking around these things like vectors, embeddings, and how you use search and how search will be able to kind of leverage the the splitting of the content that you've designed and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and Microsoft Ignite is coming up in a couple of months. I'm fairly certain, I don't know, but I'm fairly certain that we're going to see a lot of innovation 
around this because the hassle of it embeddings because you have to create those you have to build the logic manually now and there's the 32 kilobyte limitation the the, the window that the llm llm is capable of, of handling your stuff that's a bit problematic for large pdf files for example the last bit here semantic search which is part of azure cognitive search gives you an alternative route of not doing embeddings on your content but simply indexing your content let's say your stuff from sherpa online indexing that to azure cognitive search and doing a semantic search on keywords and the content it sort of works pretty well if your content is in english but if it's in swedish or finnish it's not that great but for some solutions that's a lightweight approach to doing sort of the same thing so the lessons learned for me is that building wrappers around Azure OpenAI might feel like the ultimate solution right now. But I'm fairly certain that a year from now, we are sort of laughing at the solutions that we're thinking today in the sense of, let me create an embedded text box in an intranet that utilizes ChatGPT to give me answers. Yes, that's cute, but that's not really what this should be used for in the long term. And that's why I feel stuff like semantic kernel, understanding embeddings, understanding planning, plugins, functions, and so on. That is crucial to be able to utilize this new electricity for any sort of solution in the future. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's um, like you hit the, the key point there. Uh, it's moving so fast right now with all the innovation with AI and generative AI and all the supporting services, APIs, apps, extensions. There are things launched literally every day. Every day I see new products, new services, new helpers, new SDKs, new APIs, uh, you know, leveraging OpenAI one way or the other, uh, or leveraging some of the others like Bard from Google. And, you know, there, there are things coming that's not just from OpenAI and not just using Azure OpenAI. There are other things coming as well. So I think this landscape is in such a competitive space right now that that also fuels innovation. So things are going to happen over the coming year, exactly like you say. And in a year from now, we're going to look back and say, huh, we typed into a text box and we got a couple of re replies. But just yesterday, I read an article saying that ChatGPT can now read live websites and they can provide you links to websites and references uh, for how it came up with whatever it came up with and said, well, here's a reference to this information that I just told you. So it's not just hallucinations anymore. Um, so I think that is a step in the in the right direction for innovation, for learning more more about these things. Um, so with that unlocking capability, not limiting the data of OpenAI to uh, 2021 and before, now you have live data, or you can say, hey, here's our website. I want you to take a look at that and then do this with it and whatever, whatever. And like this, being able to now communicate online with online websites. Just like the Bing extension, I don't know if you've used that, but in the browser you have the Bing extension you can try out, and you get um, like an AI helper there, and you can say, "Hey, help me compose an email, help me do this," or you can say, "On the current web page, I want you to figure out what are the three takeaways uh, from here, so I can just digest those as an executive summary." Bam, you get that because it can read the web page. Now, if OpenAI can do that now with ChatGPT. That's going to unlock a lot of innovation for a lot of companies, services, individuals, people building stuff around these things. So it's going to be exciting just in the coming weeks 
to see, you know, how are people using it? And that's where I think the surprises are going to come because you can only imagine so much, just like you mentioned, hey, here's the internet. We're doing this on our internet or here's this thing and we're doing it like this. But imagine a year from now what it's going to look like. It's going to feel like 10 years ago when we look back next year and all the innovation, all the new companies, all the new products, everything that's happened. Um, it's super exciting. I'm, I'm following it closely. It's really cool to follow. But I'm also not investing too much time trying to build something and work around some of the limitations and problems today because I know in a couple of months someone has figured that out. Uh, all the services might have figured it out. All the SDKs will have figured it out. There's no need for me to invest the time now to try and work around this very complex problem because in a couple of months, I'm pretty sure someone has figured that out at scale and can provide a solution for it that you can just kind of tap into. Yeah, I, I fully agree on that one. The last sort of parting thought from me is that something that I'm, I'm trying next week for my own fun is that I'm trying to utilize the Whisper API, which allows voice to text and so on capabilities as something that I can chalk to the LLM and then with GPT for vision, I can offer a picture. So let me draft a quick architectural diagram on a whiteboard, taking a picture of that, pushing that to Azure OpenAI or OpenAI for now, and then using voice through my phone and saying, well, what should I make better in here? How about the firewall in here? Is, which SKU should I select? And I'm hopeful that I'm getting some sort of innovations from there for myself mostly. And perhaps a year from now, that will be my co-pilot in practice. It's not going to be a text box on a web page or in Windows 11. It's it's going to be something part of my phone and laptop that's always there. And, and it senses what I'm reading and seeing and writing and drawing. And I can spar with that content. And maybe we're not quite there, but we're sort of seeing hints of getting to something like this. Alrighty, the last bit, the unexpected question. So we have three lessons that we've learned. Take a look at the show notes as well. The unexpected question and Toby, it is going to be your turn to ask me. Okay, so I, I have a question here. Uh, we've touched on something similar, but not exactly this. So uh, if you could trade places with any fictional character for one full day, who would it be? And how do you think you'd handle their kind of daily adventures or misadventures? This is an easy one. I would trade places with John Wick. And <laughs> I, I think everybody, everyone's seen the, the four John Wick movies. Uh, but I, I also know that I couldn't really handle any of the daily adventures. So I could drive the car, perhaps not as, as great, but I could at least drive the car. Yeah. But that also would has a dog, be... so you can take care of the dog. Yeah, I could take care of the dog. I could use the gold coins. I could carry the guns, yes. But yeah, it would be fairly limited, but it would there's, be fun. There's going to be two or three shootouts every 30 minutes. So yeah. <laughs> you just got to prepare. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, that would be fun. So that that's my final answer. All righty. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. All right. See you then.